So um, thank you very much um, to SRHE for, for hosting this and to Helen and um, to you Jeff as, as conveners for inviting me to, um, to come and talk on what I think is a really interesting um, subject. I just want to give a little bit of a background as to why I'm interested um, in this and then just tell you a little bit about how I'm going to, going to, to structure this. Um, about 10 years ago, I went to Leeds Trinity University um, and my role there was to set up a part-time MA in education, which was very much aimed at um, you know, full-time teachers in, in schools and further education. And what's become really clear to me over the past um, you know, 10 years or so has been a real interest in um, those teachers and lecturers coming in to want to research for the dissertation phase of their masters things around engagement. So we get primary teachers who come in and they say, I really want to do my dissertation on improving engagement in boys' fiction reading. That's a very common kind of dissertation topic. And then I get secondary teachers saying, what I really want is to improve... Um, engagement in RE at Key Stage 3, or I want to improve engagement of girls in PE. So you can see the common theme coming through. And then in further education, uh, we have a number of colleagues who say, uh, you know, I teach plumbing, but they, you know, my students have to teach key skills and they don't engage with key skills. How can I get them more engaged in key skills? So it's a common theme across all contexts of education, this idea of engagement. I don't think just in, in, in HE. But then, of course, um, I've seen the dominance of that discourse coming through into, into HE, and I'm sure you have too, in terms of the things that, that we as lecturers um, have to do in order to meet that, that kind of policy agenda. So I be, I've become really interested in it through my own students, but also then through the pressures that, that, that I've been uh, facing. And for those of you who don't know, and Jeff uh, just referred to it then, my research is in um, philosophy of education. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is around concepts, big concepts that we use in um, education, that we talk about in our everyday kind of language. So, yeah, this is where my research is currently focused. It's around the concept um, of student engagement and looking at that and trying to look at it um, sometimes philosophically, without using um, kind of data and that kind of evidence, really trying to get to grips with what the concept is um, and kind of maybe taking a different angle on that uh, and maybe um, bringing uh, a critique and, and questions to bear onto it. So in my presentation uh, for the rest of the morning, I want to just um, cover very briefly, but in a little bit more depth, some of the grounds that, that Michael introduced um, and looking at the problems that that raises before then turning perhaps in a different direction. And I hope you'll bear with me here. I want to um, turn to the work of an American philosopher who um, I've been writing about for some years. He doesn't write about higher education or student engagement, but I think what he has to say is really helpful for um, what I'm trying to say about um, engagement, but also the idea of disengagement um, in higher education. And I hope that at the end... I might have um, something to put to you which uh, will just perhaps help us to think differently about this notion of disengagement. Okay, 
So Michael's presentation referred to the work of George Q. I think there was um, uh, there was a citation. Um, oh no, it was Carhu. Sorry. Right. This is George Q. And he said this um, in 2014. Occasionally, an idea comes along that clarifies complicated matters and suggests approaches for managing fundamental problems in higher education. Student engagement is one of those ideas. And what I want to do in the first part of the presentation is, in some ways, to take issue with what Ku is saying here, because I think Michael has shown already that far from kind of settling the picture, student engagement is, we don't really understand what it is, and that it's kind of mushroomed rather than, you know, closed everything down so that we, we understand. Things aren't settled here at all. And I think some um, brief kind of examples just illustrate the point here. Um, if you look at um, a range of, of literature and policy documents, you'll find some very, very different understandings of what we mean by, by student engagement. Um, there's something, and I don't know if you've come across it, it's called the Glossary for Educational uh, Reform. It's really meant a, a resource meant for journalists and um, teachers, community leaders, to try and help um, um, people who don't work in, in, in education understand some of, some of the big concepts. And... Um, what they talk about when they're trying to define student engagement is, I think what Michael referred to, as it has to do uh, with something about attention, curiosity and passion. But also then they go on to say, well actually, um, it also has behavioural, psychological and socio-cultural aspects um, and so it's not just, not, not just kind of one thing. But then Ella Kahu, um, she's from the School of Psychology um, at Massey University in New Zealand, she kind of even explodes the concept a little more and says, yeah, it has to have intellectual, emotional, behavioural, physical, social and cultural aspects, and that we can really un only understand this thing called student engagement if we come to some kind of holistic understanding of it. But actually... It doesn't stop there, this difficulty with understanding what we really, what we really mean by it. And if we look at um, government and regulatory agencies, we find the picture is even more complex still. So the QAA for Scotland in 2011 said that in trying to understand student engagement, we need to see it as comprising a number of things. It's not only to do with students being engaged in their learning, it's also to do with them feeling part of a supportive institution and then actually working with the institution to shape learning, engaging in formal quality assurance mechanisms such as module review and, and annual review and completing some of the surveys um, which we've talked about. But it also means about influencing their experience at a, at a national level. QEA in England summarise it down even further. And what they're really interested in is the student not as engaged particularly in their learning, but engaged as a partner with the university. And they say student engagement is all about involving, sorry, involving and empowering students in the process of shaping the learning experience. So it's not just an individualistic thing, there's something about students as members of a community and um, helping to shape that institution 
and their experience in that institution, but also the students' um, experience uh, more broadly. So the emphasis here is not particularly on the student as engaged learner, but on the student as engaged partner with the university, influencing decision-making, making sure that opinions are, are heard, and empowering students to act as a critical friend. But if we look at the international evidence, picture is uh, no clearer. Uh, Michael already referred to the National Survey of, of Student Engagement, and in the US, they collect um, data across 10 strands, but using four key themes to try and help um, understand student engagement. Uh, so they're interested in, in peer learning. They're also in, interested in how um, student engagement is related to um, the academic challenge of programs and courses, but also just the experience within the faculty in terms of engaging with staff and also engaging with the wider um, campus environment and community. So we look at all those things and the different definitions in the academic literature, um, what the regulatory bodies are saying and the international evidence. And I'm not sure we're any further forward in thinking about it. And Michael made that, made that point that, um, you know, we're really not clear uh, what it means. But I think what is clear is that um, this idea of student en um, engagement has become almost rhizomatic as a, as a global phenomenon in, in education. And I think the first thing that comes out really strongly is that the effect of various rankings has had a profound um, impact on how the importance of student engagement is seen. This is um, a quote from the Times Higher um, uh, last year, and this is really relating this idea of rankings to the whole student engagement agenda. And the, the quote runs like this, TEF judgments are based on assessment criteria that examine teaching quality, learning environment and student outcomes. For example, the assessment criteria for teaching quality focus on the extent to which an institution encourages student engagement among those other things. So student engagement is up there when we're thinking about um, rankings. But also I think it's important to, uh, to recognise that often student engagement is seen by universities as a proxy for quality and also um, academics feel under pressure um, to uh, develop innovative forms of teaching to um, to kind of meet that student engagement um, agenda. And of course, universities are, are keen to minimise disengagement um, so that they can actually up their retention figures. So there's this big link between um, uh, engagement and attainment. So I think for scholars like George Koo, there's a simple equation going on here. Uh, and I think this is a, a very pertinent quote to illustrate that. The engagement premise, he writes, is deceptively simple, even self-evident. The more students study a subject, the more they learn about it. Likewise, the more students practice and get feedback on their writing, analysing or problem solving, the more adept they become. The very act of being engaged also adds to the foundation of skills and dispositions that is essential to live a productive 
and satisfying life after college. But there are a group of scholars who perhaps don't buy into this very simple equation around student engagement and they're questioning that very concept and what it's become. And uh, Joanna Vori is one of those, and I, I quite like this quote from her because I really think it encapsulates uh, you know, much of the problem. A reason to question student engagement, she writes, is that it has become a fuzz word, a fuzzy word, that in its fashionability conceals even um, the contradictory goals of different uh, stakeholders. But I think there's another really important uh, question here when we're thinking about student engagement. And that comes from um, the idea of who's actually responsible for ensuring student engagement. Is it the student herself who engages? Or is it the university's responsibility uh, for engaging students through varying pedagogical approaches? And therefore, therefore it's the university that's at fault um, if students are, are disengaged. I think some, some examples of, of, of this debate are found in Simon Lancaster's work. He's the University of the East, of, East Anglia's um, Pedagogical Innovation Ambassador. Uh, and he holds the university itself responsible for ensuring student engagement when he writes this. The lecture, for example, has serious shortcomings not least in delivering student engagement. So there's the idea in that quotation that um, it's the university's responsibility, responsibility somehow to deliver uh, forms of engagement. And I think this leads us on to uh, the idea that Michael referred to about engagement as a kind of doing or performance. And I think, was it, was it Gourlay who talked about the performance space that this is all to do with um, doing things. And I think this goes back to Lauren Steinberg in the late 90s, who drew attention to the fact that engaged students are the ones who attend classes, try reasonably hard to do well in them, um, complete the homework and the tasks that they're assigned, and don't cheat. But I think there's much more going on um, in terms of the kind of performance that we require of, of students. It's not only about attendance, but it's about participation in seminars. It's about activity on the virtual learning environment. Are students going on there regularly and posting things and adding to the blogs? Uh, do they take part in learning activities and support their peers through group presentations? Do they um, seek tutorials and do they keep in touch with the university? Do they meet assessment deadlines? And do they contribute to university service? So there's lots of things there about a kind of doing. Engagement is a performance and a doing. And in the light of all that, I think there's a question that's rarely asked. And this is where I want to kind of get on to um, a different kind of thinking about student engagement. Because a question that's rarely asked, I think, is should students be engaged? And there's a further question still, and this is where I kind of want to um, perhaps just suggest something quite controversial. Is there a kind of educational value in forms of disengagement in higher education? 
Now, this idea of, of disengagement has been studied in, in lots of contexts. It really starts with some work in um, the 1960s, uh, where scholars were looking at retirement and how um, people coming up to retirement started to disengage from various kinds of activities with which they've been involved. And, and actually, that was the start of this kind of thinking about disengagement in, in, in other sectors. Of course, we often think about um, disengagement in compulsory schooling, where we think about um, things like related concepts such as disruption, disaffection, absence uh, and inattention. And of course, in much of um, the literature, we've got uh, research on higher education that tends to address disengagement and gender, disengagement and ethnicity, disengagement in relation to um, special educational needs. And of course, then there's a whole body of literature which looks at evaluating initiatives for re-engagement. But I think there's two things that are common across much of this literature. The first, um, as with engagement, there is no common def definition of disengagement beyond the fact that it has perhaps um, cognitive and emotional dimensions. But second, that it is pathologised conduct marked by negative disconnect, marginalisation, passivity and withdrawal. Um, Ross Ferguson, a scholar who uh, works at the um, Open University on sociology of education mainly, has written perhaps the most I can find about this idea of um, disengagement in higher education. Apologies, I don't know quite what's going on here, but can you, can you hear me at the back? Is it okay? Fantastic, thank you. Um, and Ross Ferguson's work is uh, really looking at... Um, kind of more di disengagement uh, in kind of social, cultural and civic life. And he's really interested in uh, disengagement of young people, particularly around uh, voting and um, involvement in um, kind of political uh, activity and life. Uh, and he writes that um, actually by, by focusing on disengagement um, in political life, what we've done is we've tended to put the emphasis on the individual and make the individual responsible for not being part of uh, civic life, not voting, rather than looking at the bigger structural things that might be behind that. And he writes this, the conceptualization of non-participation as disengagement anticipates a positively radical move away from locating it in exclusionary failures of provision and towards self-exclusionary failures of individual performance. And I think that's a very powerful quote that also illustrates what might be um, going on in higher education too, where we seem um, to actually blame the individual for disengagement without looking at the university's responsibility here. But I want to go a bit further, I think, than Ferguson. And I want to rethink that notion of disengagement itself. And I want to offer an understanding of it, not as passive failure to act and an absence of will on the part of students, but rather more philosophically as an awakening of voice 
that's an active expression of a commitment to one's language, one's community and one's education. And I think that would suggest that we shouldn't panic about um, certain forms of disengagement. So I want to just pursue that kind of tentative understanding of disengagement through the work um, of this man, Stanley Cavell. He's um, an American philosopher of education in his 90s now, um, ex-Harvard um, professor of philosophy, and he doesn't actually write about um, education formally in terms of schooling or, or higher education. He's a bit, in one sense, I suppose, of a polymath. He's written lots about language. Uh, he writes on Wittgenstein and language. Um, he also writes about scepticism and how we know other minds. He also writes about 1940s Hollywood film and about opera. So he's, he's very broad in his, in his thinking. But his writings um, have really consistently been considered to have a strong educational bearing, even though he's not writing directly about education per se. So it's not that his philosophy is concerned with matters of policy and practice for contemporary education, but rather his writings give attention to education more broadly as a significant aspect of our human lives. And Paul Standish, who's a um, contemporary philosopher of education, um, just up the road at uh, the UCL Institute of Education, uh, has written this about um, Stanley Cavell. Ignore the chair for the moment, all will become clear. Cavell is interested in education as a critical dimension of human life. Understanding this requires attention to the criteria that sustain human practices and the development of judgment in relation um, to them. So let me just explore a little bit this notion of criteria in um, Cavell's work. Cavell, as I've said, is interested in language. And when we say certain words, what we mean by them. So for example, um, let's take a silly example. When we say the word uh, napkin, we refer to one of those beautiful kind of damask or linen kind of things that the waiter drapes beautifully over your, over your lap in a posh restaurant. But when we say serviette, we mean something different. It's usually one of those paper things out of a dispenser. Now, you might agree with me or you might disagree with me, but there are criteria for the words that we use, and that's how we kind of get on in language. That's how we can communicate with each other because we have these, these shared criteria uh, in language. But Cavell would say that criteria are there more broadly in our everyday life, in, in relation to our human practices, including education. So let me take, for example, the chair. There are kind of criteria for how we sit on one of those things, that when we sit on them, we sit kind of like this, and I don't kind of kneel on it backwards like this. Unless, of course, I might have had a drink or two of wine, and then I might do. But normally, there are criteria for how we um, operate in the world in all sorts of um, ways. They're just inextricably part of our being together in the world. And the fact that we agree together in criteria mean that we see the world together in a particular way, and so signals are being in community together. And Cavell writes this about that, that, that concept. This is, he writes it in this book, The Claim of Reason, which is his 
uh, based on his doctoral thesis, um, one of his most famous works. And he says this, the philosophical appeal to what we say and the search for our criteria on the basis of which we say what we say are claims to community. To agree in criteria is for Cavell to say that we are what he calls mutually attuned. We see the world together in a particular way. We give our assent to it. Coming back to this idea of engagement, we might say, when we agree in criteria, we are engaged together. We agree that um, the way that others see the world is a way that also um, resonates with us. But if we consent in criteria, then there are times when we also must dissent in criteria. We refuse to acknowledge that the world is this way for us at that time. We avoid consent. We disengage. But this is not um, a passive thing. This is a very active thing. It's part of our being in community together. And Cavell illustrates this idea of um, dissent in numerous examples in his work. But I want to draw attention to two of these. Um, one from a scene in Shakespeare and another from one of the 1940s Hollywood films that he writes about. So, first of all... Um, Cavell has written an essay um, about uh, King Lear. And he's write, written about the way that um, a certain scene uh, from King Lear illustrates this idea of dissenting criteria. So if you know the work, um, you know the scene where um, King Lear calls his daughters together um, and he has a question for them. How much do you love me? And of course, Regan... Uh, agrees and answers his, answers his question and declares um, her love for her father. But Cordelia, and here's, um, here's a shot here of Cordelia uh, and Leah, Cordelia refuses to do that. She dissents to do that. She disengages from that kind of activity. She refuses to see the world in that particular way and to, um, and to, to engage in the kind of performance that her, that her sister did. Of course, she loves her father um, dearly, but she doesn't conform um, in the way that her sister uh, Regan does. And uh, Paul Standish, to whom I've referred, says this about Cordelia's withholding of a response to, to her father's question. Of course, she just merely states that she has nothing to say. And for Paul Standish, um, he says, that moment is a refusal to recognise or accept the terms of the performance by which she is judged. So for Cordelia, there's a right to non-conformity, to dissent in criteria, to be disengaged, but it's an active disengagement um, from that way of understanding the world. But there's also a second and perhaps longer example that um, Cavell writes about, and it's actually from one of his works on 1940s Hollywood film. And in particular, the film Stella Dallas. Has anybody come across this film? 
I know Alexis, you will have been probably written about it. Okay, so for those of you who don't know um, uh, the film Stella Dallas, I just want to explain why I think it illustrates and depicts the kind of dissent that in criteria that Cavell's writing about. And this time um, he sees dissent as a kind of speaking for oneself, and which I want to argue is very educative in itself. So the plot of Stella Dallas runs like this. Um, Stella Martin is a, a young woman who um, wants to escape her kind of drab existence that she that she lives at home, where she um, she takes she goes to visit the local factory every day and takes her brother who also works there his sandwiches. She wants to be educated. She wants to be stylish, like um, the figure of Stephen Dallas, the factory owner who she sees every day. You can imagine what happens. She meets Stephen, and eventually they marry and they have a child, Laurel. But it's difficult for Stella. She wants to be, as she describes it, one of the swells, one of the party people, uh, one of the educated, sophisticated women, but she's just not. So Stephen wishes her to dress in beautiful, elegant, serene clothing without all the adornments that Stella likes to, likes to put on her, her clothes. And she, she has, um, she has a rather loud, um, friend called Ed Munn, whom Stephen seriously doesn't approve of. Um, Stephen's often away for business, and while he's away, he, he meets um, a very sophisticated woman called Mrs. Morrison, and you can imagine what happens. They start a relationship. There's a divorce with um, Stella, um, and Laurel goes to stay with, with Stella. Um, Stella decides to take Laurel to a rather exclusive resort for a bit of a break during these messy divorce proceedings. Um, and Laurel is horrified um, during one scene where she sees her mother um, walk, across, um, walk across the resort in an outrageously ornamented outfit. And, and Laurel's very embarrassed uh, because she realizes that the, the other stylish people are kind of judging Stella for the way that, uh, the way that she's chosen um, to look. Um, what happens towards the, towards the end of the film is that uh, we see Laurel um, getting married. Laurel has actually by this time moved to stay with Mrs. Morrison and Stella's left on her own, and Laurel is getting married. And there's a, an extremely poignant scene from the film where actually Stella, not invited to the wedding, is stood um, outside looking through the railings at the society wedding going on in the, in the house um, in front of her. And as the rain pours and she stood under the umbrella, you feel terribly sorry for Stella. But then there's a moment when she turns away, and I don't know if you can see that, but her face is completely radiant. Now that's important for Cabell. I won't go into that now, but here's a picture of her in her, um, in her kind of outrageous outfit. I'm afraid the black and white still there doesn't do it, uh, doesn't do it justice, but it's very clear um, in the film that this is completely outrageous with bows and furs and, and ornaments um, everywhere. Now, of course, we can read this film as stay, saying that Stella has no style and no taste. But this would be not quite right. Style is not all that's at stake here for Cavell. What Cavell says the film is illustrating is 
this idea of consent and dissent in criteria. Stella's aversion to her disengagement from her culture's criteria is not a passive withdrawal, something to be overcome and put right. Instead, it's the finding of her own voice, her education as a grown-up. I've nearly finished. I know probably we're looking at lunch. Another five minutes, is that okay? Is that okay? Thank you. So, thinking of engagement and disengagement in terms of these Cavellian themes of um, agreement in criteria, dissent and the finding of voice, I don't think should be taken as an indication that disengagement, if it is a problem in education, is somehow solved. Of course, there are some very powerful examples of disengagement in universities um, that institutions themselves should be concerned about. I'm not saying they should be panic about them, but they should be very concerned about them. Um, I think, for example, of um, working students and debt. Many of my students have to work full-time um, because their, uh, their maintenance loans don't even cover their, their accommodation, never mind their, um, you know, their daily living. So I think this idea of um, when students are working, they're perhaps um, uh, going to work instead of coming to lectures just to survive is something which institutions uh, need to be uh, concerned about and need to consider how they, how they address that. I think there's also a larger structural problem in terms of uh, we have a mass higher education system, perhaps we've got students coming into um, higher education and perhaps not engaging in the way that we would like simply because they're there because there's no alternatives. There's no real alternatives in the economy. Uh, there's no jobs, or they, they've seen that there's no jobs that they particularly want to do, and also there's a lack of kind of apprenticeships and other alternatives. So students coming to HE by default. And of course, I think there's a very big problem of disengagement, which is related to the crisis in student mental health. And there's been some very powerful, uh, I think, statistics on that, on that recently. But I think there is an important distinction to be drawn between these forms of disengagement that suggest um, the existence of very serious issues related to um, a student's um, experience of university and those forms that counterintuitively signal a student's active engagement um, and so are educative in themselves. But this proposing of a form of educative disengagement in no way, I think, minimises the ethical complexities of, en- of the engagement and disengagement um, debate in universities. So I'm just aware of time. So I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to, I think, finish by saying that if we think of disengagement um, in this kind of way as an active voicing of what we will and won't consent to then a something of a reversal is achieved. Disengagement is no longer, no longer a lack of action or a care about an issue, but rather the opposite, the active voicing of what we will and we won't consent to. And of course that has huge implications for how we think of student freedom. Disengagement in this way is concerned both with what we disown and what we acknowledge. And in the university, aversive thinking and the expression of voice suggests something more than just demonstrating a critical perspective. The university must, I think, be and remain a space for the fostering 
of this kind of um, attitude where disengagement is an expression of aversive thinking and a voice and so is welcomed. I want to finish with um, an example that you may have come across um, from economics students um, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2014, when there was a large group of economics students, uh, starting I think at um, University of Manchester, but then it kind of went, went global, who uh, joined forces to call for an overhaul the way in which their subject was being taught. They were very much concerned um, about the dominance of narrow free market um, theories at the top universities and how they said that um, the curricula in their universities had failed to confront the challenges such as the financial crisis and the implications of that. And so they stopped going to lectures until the university did something. This is very much the kind of um, active disengagement that I'm proposing here. And I just want to finish with this quote from Cavell. It's quite complex, but I think it illustrates this kind of point for which I'm arguing. And I'll leave with you to reflect on this, perhaps over lunch. Cavell writes this, What I require is a convening of my culture's criteria in order to confront them with my words and life as I pursue them and as I may imagine them. And at the same time to confront, confront my words and life as I pursue them, with my culture's, um, sorry, with my culture's words, what may, may imagine for me, apologies, to confront the culture with itself along the lines in which it meets in me. This seems to me a task that warrants the name of philosophy. It's also the description of something we might call education. Thank you.